Welcome to Video Village. I'm Mihir Shah and today we're talking about 2022. We're going to be reviewing our favorite movies of the year, talking about some honorable mentions, talking about some dishonorable mentions. To do all of that, joining me today is my good friend Barva Gandalia. How you doing Barva? I'm doing well man, thanks for having me on your show. This was a, a pretty unique movie year coming out of the pandemic. You know, we had a lot of delayed productions actually releasing this year. We had people finally back in theaters. What did you think about the year uh, overall? Yeah, I think for me personally, I still graded on a little bit of a curve because we're coming out of the pandemic. But, you know, I was looking through, you know, movies I've seen before in past years. And um, it looks like I watched as many movies this year as I did in like any year out of the 2010s. And there's still four or five movies this year that I think I'm going to end up rewatching in the future and that I would, you know, really recommend to people. So I think it was a pretty solid year. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. I think it's really easy for people to look back at their favorite movies in past years and be like, oh, you know, well, this year has no- nothing compared to that. I think you kind of have to open your mind up a little bit and think about how you're going to feel in five, ten years about some of these movies. And you don't want to always feel like, oh, you know, we had, a, we had a great in the past, but we... We don't have anything good in the present because I just think that's that's not true. I, I do I agree with you. I think there's a lot to appreciate this year, and I'm excited to talk about it. Do you want to just jump in? Let's do it. All right. So, a little bit of background on our top ten lists. If we just had a list of our favorite movies of the year, we would have a lot of common ones. Um. So, for the listener, we we modified our lists a little bit so that whoever had a movie higher on their list for the most part, took that movie. So if I have a movie at number two and Barva had it on number six, then I'm going to be talking about that movie. So these are what we call modified top ten lists. Um, but we want to talk about 20 unique movies. We want to talk about um, you know different genres and, and different uh, styles of movies so that we can appeal to everyone here. Um, let's get into it. You're number ten, Barva. Let's hear it. Yeah, my number 10 of 2022 is The Batman. Yes. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of a description here for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, Batman ventures into Gotham City's underworld when a sadistic killer leaves behind a trail of cryptic clues. As the evidence begins to leap closer to home and the scale of the perpetrator's plans become clear, he must forge new relationships, unmask the culprit, and bring justice to the abuse of power and corruption that has long plagued the metropolis. It's three hours of Batman kicking ass, basically. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, you know, right off the bat, uh, what I really liked about this reincarnation of Batman is that it does feel very dark, um, and his troubled past is, you know, very much on display. Um, you know, when I think of the Batman, the first thing that comes to mind is the Chris Nolan trilogy, um, and in there, you know, in Batman Begins, they get into a little bit of his past and his, his and Bruce Wayne's struggles, but, uh, you know, it's always kind of cool. It's Chris Nolan making this movie, you know, so um, I liked that. Uh, I did feel like some of the plot lines got pretty repetitive. You know, like how many times does the Batman need to walk into the Iceberg Lounge to confront the Penguin? Yeah, he, he goes um, a little too often. <laughs> you know, he's always beating up the same two bodyguards, you know. Yeah, <laughs> those guys are permanently... In the infirmary. Like, um, if the tone was different, it would have felt like a Looney Tunes movie. He just yeah. keeps going to the same people and beating them up. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, I thought it got a little bit long there in the end. And they tried to make it really, really grand and build up to something. 
personally, I thought it was just a little bit too over the top and fell flat for me. But, uh, you know, it was a great blockbuster movie. It came out, uh, I believe, in March or April. Yeah. Um, so a good way to kick off the year. Yeah, totally. I, I do agree that the, the ending wasn't my favorite. Um, but, like, most of the movie was pretty... It was fun to look at. And I think the premise was really cool because it was it was at its heart a mystery movie. And Batman plays, like, a detective. That was pretty yeah. sick. Um, yeah, it just felt like you were watching, like, an episode of Criminal Minds, which was pretty cool. Um, good music, you know. Yeah, that theme music. Though Those piano notes are just... Too good. Too I good. will say, it was a little wild to me that, like, the whole movie's music was that same melody over and over again. It, like, kind of worked. I think it worked. You think I think so? it worked really well. Yeah. It was... I guess maybe I just felt that the movie was too long, so by the end of it, I was like, damn, I'm... I couldn't get it out of my head, that theme. I, I mean, it was, it was fun. You're right. It was good. Good, uh, good number 10. My number 10 is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. <laughs> <laughs> This movie was so much fun. Did you see it? I haven't seen it yet. Everyone's telling me about it. I'm trying to go watch it as soon as I can, but I have not seen it yet. This movie is uh, just like a lot of fun. Like I think a lot of DreamWorks' best movies are just like you go into the theater and you have a great time. Um, my favorite DreamWorks movies are the ones that ha- have really good animation but also have like really good visual storytelling. And this one really does. Uh, it's the character of Puss in Boots basically going on this otherworldly adventure. The plot line is, is basically that, you know, Puss in Boots is a, uh, a a bandit, an outlaw cat, and he's been living life pretty recklessly. He, you know, as most cats do, has nine lives, and he realizes that he is quite literally on his last life, and he's paid a visit by Death, who is the big bad wolf, Basically, I'm, I'm, it might be confusing those two like characters in the world of Shrek and Puss in Boots, but um, he's a very scary wolf, and he basically tells Puss in Boots that this is your last life, and you've been living recklessly, and I'm here to kill you. And so Puss in Boots is on the run, and there's a magical um, power or magical star or something like that where you can make a wish on, and Puss in Boots wants to find that so that he can wish for more lives. And through this journey, he goes and meets a lot of other uh, fictional characters. I'm not going to spoil it because I think that's a lot of fun to, to meet these fictional characters. But if you listen to nursery rhymes, you're going to know all the characters. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. Uh, great characters, great uh, world building, um, and some really like sweet, heartfelt moments. They have a, a scene in particular that I don't think is spoiling anything where... Uh, one of the characters has a panic attack on screen and the way they portrayed that and the way that they use sound in that scene was like really powerful Um, and one of the most memorable movie scenes I think of the year so definitely go see that movie one of the better DreamWorks movies I think I've seen it might be in my top 10 I don't even know if I have a top 10 DreamWorks but it was it was very memorable all right number nine yeah, my number nine is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. <sighs> Benoit Blanc, he's back again with a whole new cast of characters. Ryan Johnson writing another mystery thriller. Short description of this one. Tech billionaire Miles Braun, uh, Ed Norton, played by Ed Norton, invites his friends for a getaway on his private Greek island. When someone turns up dead, Detective Benoit Blanc is put on the case. Um... You know, this movie, I, I feel like this movie was 
destined to fail is a strong word, is a strong way to put it, but I feel like it was always going to be in the shadow of the first Knives Out movie, which was just, you know, everyone loved it. It brought back that sort of, you know, mystery, thriller, whodunit um, type of movie back to uh, theaters. So, you know, I feel like you have to kind of grade it on a curve. Even then, I feel like it fell flat in the second half. They did a lot of cool things, um, you know, a lot of small twists here and there. But I feel like near the end, um, the story got a little bit basic and I, I, they didn't tie in uh, the side characters uh, into the story as effectively as I thought they would, uh, which disappointed me a little bit. But I think it's still worth a watch. You know, it's on Netflix, uh, pretty easy to access. So. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that review. I don't think... I, I think the way they set up the movie... I mean, we I was watching it at home like everyone did. It was on Netflix. Um, it only was in theaters for a week, which was, you know... It's a whole other conversation about how they released this movie. They did it in theaters for a week. They waited a month and then they put it on Netflix, I guess, to generate excitement about the movie, which kind of worked. I mean, it was a, it was a number one movie on Netflix for a couple of weeks. Um, but I watched it at home and we paused it halfway through the movie. And halfway through, I looked around and I was like, this is amazing. Like the premise was so solid. The, like the, when we paused it, something had just been revealed and it was a really exciting reveal. It was like, oh, this is about to get crazy. And then it kind of didn't get crazy at all. It kind of just stayed there and then went downhill. And I, I think thematically they were trying to do something with the whole idea of what a glass onion represents and the idea that there's a lot of layers, but you can see right through it very easily, which sure, I, I get that. But I think as like a watching experience, it felt like a letdown, even compared to the first Knives Out movie. Um, but... Yeah, I, I do think it's worth watching, though, because we don't get a lot of good murder mystery movies, like you were saying. Um, either the Christie ones, the um, Murder on the Orient Express, and all of those variations that have been coming out, they're like pretty lackluster most of the time. Yeah, and, and to be honest, even the original Murder on the Orient Express, I have seen it, and I did not enjoy it. Um, so it's it's refreshing to see someone do this genre well, because... It has so much potential and I feel like it's very universal in that sense. Like, I don't think there's many people who don't like a murder mystery movie. Yeah. I, I will say one thing that they did really well was bring in like the cultural moment that we're in. All of this stuff, it, it like takes place during COVID-19. Like the, the characters are wearing masks. It's used as like a, a device to show you who the characters are. Um, <clears throat> it opens with a a pandemic party basically just showing that like hey rich people didn't actually quarantine uh when they were supposed to um so yeah i i enjoyed all those moments but yeah i think the ending didn't live up to what i thought the movie was setting up um but maybe it's due for a rewatch you know maybe it actually works well in that world and maybe it was just not what i expected so i don't know it might be time to actually go back and yeah, and, you know, Daniel Craig, he's always a pleasure to watch, you know, whatever movies, and yeah. so uh, time won't be wasted. Yeah, that's a good pick, man, good pick. Um, my number nine is a little different. My number nine is a documentary. Uh, I don't think you've seen this one. No, I have not. So this movie is called Senior. It's on Netflix. Um, Senior is about Robert Downey Jr. and his dad, Robert Downey Sr. Um, Robert Downey Sr. was a... Uh, indie filmmaker way back in the day um 
Robert Downey Jr. has talked about this very openly in the past before this movie, but uh, growing up, Robert Downey Jr. was in a lot of his dad's movies, was always on a film set. Um, being around that world is also what set Robert Downey Jr. on like a fairly dark path as a young kid um, that he's now uh, very obviously like overcome and whatever. But this this documentary is essentially just about their relationship and mostly about his dad and the man he is. So it's it's like a love letter that Robert Downey Jr. is is making for his dad. The really special part about this is that you know Robert Downey Jr. is making this movie. Like, he's the producer. Um, but his dad, during the documentary, like, he's... I'll give you an example. Uh, his dad is sitting in the chair, and Robert Downey Jr. is like, okay, sit here, we're going to ask you some questions. And his dad looks at the camera, and he's like, why don't you shoot it from this angle? The lighting's better from here. And he starts to basically direct his own documentary about himself. How long have you and Pops been married? 1,500 years. We should switch seats. How long have you guys been married? 1,500 years. Did that go better this time? She looked up in the middle of something up, up that way. You're right. Let's do it again. Take three. Opener. He's so in love with this idea of filmmaking. And it's so clear that, like, all he wants to do is make great stories. And that's very prevalent throughout the whole movie. So it's a really cool way to, like, explore the, the mind and the soul of this guy who Robert Downey Jr. so clearly loves. It's also incredibly intimate. You have moments of times where Robert Downey Sr. starts to get sick and it shows very openly like what Robert Downey Jr. was dealing with during those times. There's even a shot of Robert Downey Jr. in therapy, like video therapy. And like, this is not a spoiler because it's it's like no knowledge, but Robert Downey Sr. like died right after they filmed this documentary. And so it, it's basically just like a 90 minute snippet into what their lives are like. Um, I just think it's really special. I, I didn't feel like I was like intruding on anything. It doesn't feel like you're like going to see anyone in a different light. It's more so just like an appreciation for this guy and his love of movies, which I think we can all relate to. So, yeah, I just thought it was really special. I think everyone should check it out. Yeah, so uh, my number eight uh, movie of 2022 is The Massive Weight of Unbearable Talent, a.k.a. The Nicolas Cage Movie. Um, basically, in this movie, Nicolas Cage, he's playing a fictionalized version of himself, but it's pretty similar to, uh, you know, what people think he's like, maybe exaggerated a bit, uh, and he's basically neglected his family life, um, you know, by living in the past when he was a big movie star, and now, basically, he's facing financial ruin. Um, he accepts a $1 million offer to attend a wealthy fan's birthday party. Uh, this wealthy fan is played by Pedro Pascal, who's uh, amazing in this movie. Um, things take a wildly unexpected turn when CIA operatives recruit Cage for an unusual mission. Taking on the role of a lifetime, he soon finds himself channeling his most iconic and beloved characters to save himself and his loved ones. Um, this movie, I don't know if I'm going to rewatch it, but I watched it in the theaters. It was pretty funny, uh, had a decent amount of action, and uh, you know, definitely worth watching once. Even if you have, you know, no knowledge of Nick Cage and kind of his uh, maybe fall from grace, 
this was this was actually a question I was going to ask you because I think the only Nicolas Cage movie I really have a relationship to is National Treasure. Yeah, and yeah. so I was wondering like if you feel if you had a different relationship to him going into this or if that made a difference to you. Honestly, for me, it's pretty similar. I feel like we were too young to be in that stretch of like Face Off and Con Air and uh, you know, leaving Arizona. Las Vegas, yeah. raising Arizona, um, all movies that we definitely should watch. And maybe we'll have a better appreciation of this one after watching those. Um, but it's just, you know, it's always fun to see someone be self-aware and play the fictionalized version of themselves. Mm. Um, like I said, Pedro Pascal, he plays uh, what the CIA and other people believe is to be like a drug kin- kingpin, um, I believe in Spain. And, you know, he's great. He's, he's got great comedic timing. As the movie goes on, I don't think this is much of a spoiler, but him and Nick Cage, they, they become close friends. And then, uh, you know, the, the story takes a turn when the CIA come in and ask Cage to kind of work against Pedro Pascal's character. Ah, it's, it's like a, it's, this reminds me, it's like a buddy cop movie almost. Yeah, it's kind of like a buddy cop movie, but then, you know, somebody comes in and says, hey, your buddy, he's actually like corrupt and a bad dude. You got to go against him, and it's like, my God, you know, like one side, this is my man right here. On the other, on the other side, you know, I made this vow to, uh, you know, protect the community. Yeah, but it's not dramatic at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's very lighthearted. It's an easy watch. Uh, go watch it. Okay. Yeah, I remember when this came out. It was like, what the hell is this movie? Like, why is Nicolas Cage playing himself in a movie? The trailer was really fun. So yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, and I was thinking about other movies that I could compare it to, and to me, you know, this might be uh, inaccurate in some people's eyes, but it was almost kind of like Pineapple Express, but maybe less erratic and uh, stonery, um, a little bit more in control, but still had, you know, some good unexpected comedy. My number eight. My number eight is a movie that, like, I just, I still don't really understand what I watched. Um but it has never left my mind because of how powerful it was, whatever it was. I'm talking about a movie called Tar. This is a movie starring Kate Blanchett. She plays a conductor in the movie. She plays the goat of conductors in the movie. Like she's like the most famous living uh, conductor in the world at, at her peak, um, which is where we meet her in this movie. And it's tough to give like a one-line synopsis because if I do, it, it's, it sounds like the movie is something that it's not. The one-line synopsis in its true form is that this is about a conductor at the height of her powers who is accused of sexual abuse. In reality, this movie is really just a very deep look at this one character. And we never leave her point of view the entire time we're watching this movie. Everything we see, we see kind of like the way she sees the world. Uh, for the most part, um, it it covers like, obviously the, the world of music and, and modern music and the relationship between classical music and, and what it is now, whatever that is. It covers the idea of can- cancel culture and how that takes form and how it can affect somebody. Um, it covers like mental illness. It covers like borderline schizophrenia. Um, the reason I'm, I'm having such a tough time talking about this is because like when you go into this movie you can't expect a story that you're, you can understand 
beginning, middle, and end. It's really, it just feels like a fever dream, this whole thing. It's like, you're watching this woman just slowly unravel and you learn more and more about her and her inner demons. And, and quite literally, I left the, the movie and I, I went on TikTok and I saw a TikTok that was like, did you notice in this one frame that there, there's a literal like ghost or like demon in one of the corners of the frame? And I was like, I did not realize that. But when I was watching that scene, I knew that something was off. So this movie is like filled with um, crazy shit that you just don't really understand in the moment. At least I didn't. But I can I I understand the ideas that they're throwing out and the themes that they're trying to portray. Um, curious, like, have you heard anything about this movie or, or know anything about it? I haven't heard much um, outside from what I've heard from you. Um, but I, I def- another one where I, <laughs> I definitely need to watch. Um, yeah, I feel like with a lot of your list, these are all movies that are just on my list that I just have not gotten to. Um, but I think this one, I think Tar just got released onto Peacock or something, which I have a subscription for for some reason. Oh, there you go. So uh, I'll check it out soon. I should borrow that login, actually. I don't need to. I don't, yeah. I don't have to. Yeah, I'll get it to you. All right, cool. Um, I will mention that, like, Kate Blanchett is is the front runner for the Best Actress Award at the Oscars. She's been like cleaning up at all of the Critics' Choice Awards throughout the country, um, and some of the other big big awards. There's a really strong like critical response to this movie. I think a lot of people appreciate the fact that like it doesn't hold your hand. Uh, you know, it's not explaining to you what it wants to be. It just kind of presents itself, and you're forced to to view it. And it's out of anything on my list, I think it's the most like very clearly like a piece of art. It's not there to necessarily entertain or educate or inform. It's just there as like a piece of like filmmaking um, ambition that's presented to you. And everything from like the opening credits and how they're presented to the ending credits and how they're presented is intentional. So it's a really like fascinating movie to study. And I definitely need to rewatch it because there's probably so much I didn't catch. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I'll end there. My number seven movie is a movie that Mihir has also seen. Yes. And that he actually liked a little bit more than I did. Yes. And that is a movie called Babylon. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this movie, man. Yeah. So if if you don't know, Babylon is a movie that follows several different uh, people in the kind of Hollywood world in the 1920s. So it follows an established movie star during that time, um, an up-and-comer, and then people kind of just involved in filmmaking who you would never know that they were part of the movie. Their names don't even appear in the credits. Um, and it starts kind of in the 1920s. Um, I think it's like, you know, a golden age of some sorts, uh, silent films, but then they start transitioning to talkies and movies with sound. And it takes a look at these different characters and how their lives change um, through this transition from silent film to talkies. Yeah. Um, I just, I remember I, I, I'm looking at my letterbox review of this movie and I just wrote, Margot Robbie is the past, present, and future of movies. She was like incredible in this i think it's one i think it's my favorite performance i've seen her do because it's just so batshit crazy um brad pitt is uh, a supporting actor in this movie he's great diego calva i think it's his first movie who basically is our main character and the guy we 
see rise the ranks of Hollywood throughout the throughout the film. Why did you like it? Um, so this movie is about three hours long, I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which usually is a bad sign for me. Uh, a runtime that long, I'll usually get bored. But the first half of this movie flies by because it's a nonstop like adrenaline rush. Um, it's an extremely explicit movie. Um, it's very over the top. Don't watch it with your family. Yeah, I was gonna say parents. the same thing. Don't bring your parents. Do not present this movie in like a wholesome environment of any sorts, because uh, it is the opposite. You know, it starts off with like a crazy 1920s party that I think is supposed to uh, mirror like ancient Roman parties and orgies and whatnot. Um, but it starts there. Um, it shows you how insane filmmaking actually was at that time. Um, they take you to a, uh, you know, like a field in the California desert or a valley of some sort, and they're shooting like 10 to 15 films at once because there's no need for any audio, so they each have like little sets everywhere. Um, extras are just like dying, shoot, like shooting an epic war movie. Literally uh, dying. Like literally dying, yes. <laughs> And then they transition to talkies, and there's a lot more equipment, there's other voices in the room, um, people don't know how to handle it, it's extremely stressful. Um, and then I think the movie slows down a lot, about halfway through. Mm -hmm. You really start following uh, Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt's characters. Uh, they kind of peaked in the first half as, uh, in their lives in this universe, um, and then they kind of slowly head downhill, things get a little bit darker, um, and then for me personally the movie definitely kind of lost me at the end. Um, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but there's like... It's a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> it's a spoiler. Got that. I just, the ending is uh, divisive. Yeah, I it was very extra. It was unnecessary for me. Yeah, okay. That's... I, I can't really argue that. I don't think it was a necessary thing to add at the end. I will. I will just add to everything you said that a it's like a it's a cocaine movie, like very explicitly a cocaine movie. The first scene you see two of our main characters like talking over a huge mound of cocaine, and that's why I think the first hour and a half of this movie feels like a drug trip in the most fun way. It's like any of the. It's like you know, Goodfellas. The first hour and a half is like so much fun, even though they're doing debauched things and yeah i think the back half of this movie uh slows down i i don't really have a problem with the pace i think i had a problem with one of the subplots that carries us to basically the last 15 minutes and that subplot just didn't work for me it was a little derivative it was yeah. and i think they were trying to show this underbelly of hollywood without spoiling anything but yeah that whole thing uh didn't work for me toby Maguire shows up for 20, 20 minutes and he does a lot of things that are... Steals the show. Steals the show, quite literally. Um, one thing I really appreciated about this movie that I don't think I really processed until after I was like in the car driving home is that it, it does show that 1920s Hollywood was super diverse. And as the talkies came about and producers and Hollywood executives wanted to show people that had class and felt proper, that lent itself to rich white people. And so you had all of these immigrants and all of this diversity sort of fade to the background. And a lot of like whitewashing of personalities went on. 
And I just thought that was a really interesting point because now we look at Hollywood and we have, you know, Oscar so white campaign and, and all of this stuff. And it's really cool to see that like, you know, when this, all of this mayhem started, there was actually a ton of diversity going on and it was celebrated. It wasn't just there and people were hating on it. Everybody loved all of these people. Um, so I just thought that was really special and like a really cr- a great way to, to tell the story. Yeah, just a really, really fun time, man. All right, my number seven. You haven't seen this movie because you're not a <laughs> like every movie. other movie on your list <laughs> up to like number five. Yeah. I have not seen it. Well, it's because you're not a horror movie person per se. Yeah, and I for sure am, which is why this movie made it onto my list. This is a movie called Barbarian. Uh, I, I've seen this movie three times. I watched it in theaters, which was an, an amazing experience. I think all all movies should be watched in theaters. But I think the most underrated movie to watch in theaters is the horror movie. It, it really elevates the experience. This movie is about a woman who checks into an Airbnb in Detroit, in like a suburb of Detroit, late night, one night. It's raining. It's dark. It's not the best neighborhood. And she tries to get the keys from the, the lock, and they're not there. And so she's sitting in her car trying to call the hosts. And when that happens, lights turn on in the house, and a man opens the door, and he's like, why are you here and she's like hey i i booked this airbnb he's like no i booked it on a different site and so now she's stuck with the problem like what do i do and he's like why don't you come in and we can figure this out i don't know if you got a great look at this neighborhood but i don't think you should be out there by yourself it's dry and there's a lock on the door by the way i'm keith tess you take the bedroom and i'll sleep out here on the couch It's presented as this movie about a woman who enters a house with the creepy man in it and what unfolds when you watch the trailer. At least that's what the story is kind of presented as. And let me tell you, this movie is so much more than that premise. It's, I, I'm not going to spoil anything because I think you, you shouldn't even watch the trailer if you're going to go into it. Um, if you watch the trailer and you don't like horror movies, you're not going to watch it because the trailer is terrifying. But this movie is like, a marvel of writing it's like i think a 90 minute film uh that's not true it's like 100 minute but really great runtime really tight script that takes you through a very scary circumstance and then explains that circumstance from like two different angles and it's a marvel of casting and i can't get into why because it'll be a spoiler but the cast features two people that audiences might have a relationship with uh bill skarsgård who plays Pennywise the Clown in the new It movies. And he just like, he's not wearing makeup, but like he has that creepy face. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like yeah. something's off about him. And it also features Justin Long, who is in like a lot of rom-coms from the last 20 years. Yeah, he's like the quintessential nice guy yes. character. He's always the nice guy in every movie you meet him. So yeah, this movie is just like, it really just scares you at every turn. It makes you so paranoid at every turn. And... It's just a really, really good time. I can't stress enough like how much this movie subverts every expectation you have of a horror movie, which is why I loved it. And I just, it just felt so fresh. It's also uh, Zach Greger, Zach Kreger, excuse me. Uh, it's his first movie. He wrote it and directed it. Yeah, I could talk about this movie all day. One thing I'll mention about it, which I think is a cool like tidbit about how it was made, 
is that he wrote a short film, which ends up being the first 30 minutes of the movie. And then he put that short film away. And when he came back to it, he was like, wait, this actually has a lot of potential. And so then he started writing from page 31 or whatever. And the movie feels like it. The movie feels like you watch one movie and then you started another movie. And it's like very discombobulating when you watch it. And it just works really well. So I'm not going to spoil it, even though I really want to. You should go watch it on HBO Max. Watch it with your friends. And then let me know what you think. Great movie. Honestly, dude, we should watch it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) We should watch it. It's so good. We'll see. We'll see. That's a no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number six. Uh, This is another movie where Mihir might feel more strongly about it than I will, but it's Nope. Uh, Jordan Peele's Nope. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard about this movie. It was a big blockbuster last fall. If you don't know, it's about a man and his sister. This is Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. And they basically own a horse ranch and they provide show horses kind of horses uh that will be featured in movies and commercials and whatnot um so they live in california close-ish to hollywood and there is also a nearby theme park um run by a character played by steven yoon i think yeah it's kind of like when you go to the state fair and it's a little janky like all the rides <laughs> yeah um this place is like in the middle of the desert but basically on their ranch they start seeing like something floating in the sky and they think it's an alien and they decide they're going to try to document its existence mainly through like catching it on video and the movie kind of goes from there yeah why did you like it? Because I can talk about yeah. why I liked it, but I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think off the bat, you know, it was just really entertaining, and I hadn't really seen a movie do what it was trying to do. It was a very new story, so mm-hmm. it keeps you engaged, um, good action, and I think there was a lot of small themes here and there that you can get a little bit out of. Uh, one of the ones that was most prominent to me when I watched it was, like, exploitation of animals uh in society but then particularly like when making movies yeah um uh and then and then beyond that like the mentality of being the chosen one or being different from others that's something that also pervades the movie uh, a lot of interesting things to kind of sit and grapple with and i think it's a movie that i need to rewatch. yes and see how that affects my thinking on those subjects the first time I watched it, I went in with this expectation that it was going to be a Jordan Peele movie, aka a social thriller that I could kind of process into a framework that I understood. And that really wasn't the case. I think when you watch this movie, there's a lot of things presented to you. And it, I almost felt like overwhelmed with like more questions than I had answers. On second watch, I totally got all those themes you're talking about. I also think it presents this theme of like your relationship to quote unquote the spectacle and spectacles in general, and how some people try to, uh, like you said, like exploit and manipulate those spectacles. Um, All this stuff about like miracles and bad miracles, uh, which was basically just like a plot device that's used to introduce kind of like the enemy force. Um, 
but it's also apparent in some other uh, scenes that take place that we can't really spoil. Great acting in this movie, amazing music, really great visuals. It's the same uh, cinematographer that um, I believe Christopher Nolan has used and, and Denis Villeneuve has used in the past. I'm forgetting which movies, but like he's been a really, really big force in Hollywood the last couple of years. Hoyt, Hoyt Van Hoytema. Hoyt Van Hoytema. Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet. Um, so I guess it's just Christopher Nolan, not uh, Denis, my bad. But yeah, you can tell. I think when you watch this movie, it's like this is like really good visual effects and, and just like beautiful cinematography. And it's completely shut out of the Oscars, which I don't understand for the life of me. Part of me thinks that that's not necessarily all on the Academy. I think it's like maybe on part of like Universal Pictures and they, they just didn't put any resources behind it. This was a summer movie. People might have just like forgotten about it. But yeah, for whatever reason, I mean, this was like, I think definitely the most underrated movie of the year. Also, there's a whole theme of like media. Uh, TMZ is, is quite literally like they show up in the movie. Do you think this is your favorite Jordan Peele movie? No, uh, it's definitely not. Nope, as I should say. Actually. <laughs> nope, it is not. Uh, that's definitely got to be Get Out for me. I think. Yeah, okay, I, I agree with you. Miles ahead, a classic that you know you could rewatch it a hundred times, and it would still every single time it'd still be like Get Out. You know, quite literally. Um, I I I want to agree with you, man. <laughs> I honestly think that like Nope is gonna in ten years we might look back like Get Out for sure. Yes, Get Out, it, it holds so much cultural weight. It ch- quite literally changed the industry and the world and how we, you know, presented racism in movies. But I think Nope might hold up better in like 10, 15 years in terms of like as a like filmmaking feat. Uh, I don't know. I'm on the Nope train. I'm on the Babylon train. I'm on all these trains <laughs> that aren't going anywhere. <laughs> I just really want to ride them to the end of whatever track we're on. Um, okay, my number six movie is... A small movie that is also pretty um, underappreciated this year. It's called After Sun. I know you haven't watched this movie. It, this movie is... And I talked about it a couple times on the podcast already. I, I drafted it in the Parenthood movie draft. I talked about its movie score briefly. Um, so I'm not going to dwell too much on this one. This is just a really great take on what it means to look back on your relationship with a parent um, and a family member. And... It just presents itself as something to bask in, as a feeling, and as an experience. It's a 100-minute movie. Yeah, I think you should check it out if you're, if you're curious. It's definitely uh, a little arty. Um, it, it doesn't really hold your hand through a lot of things. But I think if you're able to relate to uh, the story and to the characters, which I think a lot of people will be able to when you kind of get to know them uh, by the 30-minute mark, uh, it's very rewarding. This movie also should have been better represented at the oscars i think it deserved a best picture nomination honestly but yeah last thing i'll mention about after sun is the main actor paul mescal is uh he's nominated for best actor but more importantly he's um he's like very quickly becoming a a rising star somebody to, to watch he got cast in gladiator 2 have you heard about this i have not they're making a sequel and he's the main actor so i think this kind of sets him up for uh, success there because you know people have this relationship to him now he's also like kind of uh, a thirst trap god a little bit on tiktok okay. for the, the younger generation so a lot you know if you like beautiful men watch the movie check it out <laughs> there you go all right before we get into our top fives let's take a quick break and we'll do honorable and dishonorable mentions 
honorable mentions. I have a couple. I don't know how many you have. Yeah, why don't you do a couple, and then I only have two, literally. Okay. So then I'll kind of sandwich mine in between yours. Okay, my, my first honorable mention, um, this was on my top ten list, and I just watched way more movies in the last month, and it, it kind of just went down the list. Great movie. It's called Pearl. This is a slasher film directed by Ty West. It is the prequel to another movie that came out in 2022 called X. I have not seen X. Um, I really should. There's nothing stopping me from watching that movie. But basically, X X is like another slasher film. And both of these movies star, star Mia Goth. Mia Goth is a rising horror star. She's fantastic in Pearl. And basically, as a prequel, you see the origin story of the villain of X. So the villain of X is the main character of Pearl. And we see a young version of her. So this movie is basically about a young girl who lives on a little farm in Texas. And she has huge aspirations to become a movie star or a dancer or somebody famous. She wants to be on the screen. And she has parents that are, rather a mom that is very controlling and wants her to help out on the farm and not go chase these silly dreams. Her father is uh, is very sick. Is He's like in, a, in a wheelchair. They need to take care of him. I, I forget what his actual condition is, but um, he, he's a silent character in this movie. This movie is, is less so like a, a slasher and more so just like a slow burn creepy movie where it very clearly from the first two minutes of the movie, you're like, something's wrong with her. This girl's really fucked up. And then... The rest of the movie, you're just kind of like seeing this conflict build and build until the last 30 minutes where everything goes haywire. Really fun. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued because I know they have a sequel to X coming out as well. Yeah, XXX or Maxine. Maxine, I think, yeah. What's XXX? Did I just make that up? Well, I think they spell it with three X's. They spell Maxine with three X's. That's what I'm thinking about. Okay. So yeah, Maxine's coming out this year, 2023, I think. Yeah. So... Quick little horror trilogy in two years, so catch up, watch X and Pearl, and then go watch Maxine in theaters. I'm sure it'll be great. Okay, this is tough because I have like five dishonorables, but I have this one movie in my honorable mentions, even though it's like, I don't even think it's good. Um, this movie is Elvis. <laughs> have you seen Elvis? No. Okay, so here's what I think about Elvis. Austin Butler, who's the actor who plays Elvis Presley, is phenomenal, like like, he is Elvis Presley in this movie. I can't stress that enough. Like, he's fantastic. He sings and dances and looks and acts and talks and walks just like Elvis. And it's really fun to watch any scene he's in because he's great. So I want you to know those New York people ain't gonna change me none. Half the movie I'm watching it and I'm like, this movie's a little dumb, but he is so much fun to watch that I'm still enjoying it. The parts I didn't like were any scene with Tom Hanks in the, in the movie. Tom Hanks plays uh, Elvis's manager in this movie, who I think historically is known to have been a con man and a grifter and somebody who took advantage of Elvis. And he's presented as like, I guess the main villain of the story, but he's in it way too much. 
And it's a really boring character. It's a very one note, terrible accent, really weird acting by Tom Hanks. Um, he looks disgusting. He is. He just looks terrible. He's so gross in this movie. And the, it just doesn't work as a story. Like, I think if they had focused on anything else in the movie as, like, the main um, turning point or, like, the main conflict, it this would have been, like, a five-star film. Because Baz Luhrmann makes these, like, crazy coked-up movies, and this is definitely really crazy, but it kind of works because Elvis is in Hollywood and he's living this insane life. So all of that stuff, like, it was hard to get used to, but then after 30 minutes, I was like, I'm sold, I'm in it. But, yeah, they just spend way too much time on this 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 manager character they do like make it a really big point to show that elvis took everything he knew from black people and that's great like they do they do mention that in the movie a lot but i also think that like when it comes to what the public knows about elvis presley don't we already know that isn't that like agreed upon that like he stole from like i just think that there's nothing challenging in this movie at all you don't learn really anything new about elvis and yeah, I just I just was a little turned off by the whole Tom Hanks manager thing, but I I'm keeping it on honorable mentions solely because of Austin Butler. It's really fun to watch him. This movie's on uh, HBO Max, so yeah, go watch it. I think it's it's worth watching just for him. Great, I can jump in and do a couple of movies here that did not make my top ten, but we do want to mention here in this movie. I you know I feel pretty ambivalent towards it um i don't even know if i would say it's an honorable mention maybe just a mention <laughs> uh, that's that, <laughs> that movie is the menu yeah um a lot of people really like this movie they did um i think it's technically critically acclaimed um it's basically about a few guests who go to a very exclusive, fancy, three Michelin star restaurant, um, which is on like a remote island, of course. So they have to take like a yacht to get there, and they're isolated, and they're having this delicious like ten course tasting meal. Um, but there's something off about the head chef, um, who's played by Ray Fiennes, and slowly the night starts to take a turn, and. It's, it's not going to end well for the guests. And I think this movie, um, it is really focused on social commentary about the pretentiousness of haute cuisine, of kind of just people with a lot of money yeah. and making food overly complicated and, you know, asking the question, is this even good food? Is this even what you enjoy eating? Or is it just very pretentious and, you know, it took a lot of energy to manufacture and that's what you're appreciating out of it? But food is food. You know what I'm saying? Like, quite literally in this movie, you know, it shows that a simple hamburger can be as good as a three Michelin star yep. meal. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. They gel? We gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is gonna be. You won't know till the end. I think the food did look good, though. 
Who looked bussing? The, <laughs> the food, food was, was bussing looking in this movie. bussing. It made me want to eat immediately. I was like, I wish I had mozzarella sticks. $15 mozzarella sticks from the, uh, the theater I was in. Maybe the funniest movie I saw all year. And the reason I think that still didn't get it on my top 10 is because some of the humor towards the end of like... Maybe, maybe towards like the middle of the movie got a little lowbrow almost like low-hanging fruit humor that i think negated its premise and the points it was making it's very much like eat the rich energy which weirdly a lot of movies this year have been um glass onion was the same way glass onion is very much like eat the rich a movie that i've not seen and that maybe would have ended up on either of our top 10 lists um triangle of sadness is also apparently very much eat the rich so it's it's definitely like a theme that's popular in our culture now. And I think that's why a lot of people did appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head with low-hanging fruit. Because, like you said, I think this eat the rich mentality is so in our culture that like you just click the button of like, I'm going to kill the rich people. And you just like applause, immediate yeah. applause and acclaim. And I felt like a lot of the decisions didn't really make sense to me i don't know maybe i was also in a very like analytical mindset when i was watching this movie which made me question the choices and the plot more than i would have if i was watching it you know the following day um as a pure comedy if you if you go into this movie thinking it's like a will i mean will ferrell did produce it so if you went in looking at it as like a will ferrell comedy which is obviously like usually very goofy and very much like you can turn your brain off and just have a good time I think the first half of this movie holds up in that regard. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. But as a as a um, as a take on how we should be like treating these people, it just didn't really make too much sense to me. I, yeah. I I wanted I almost wanted like thirty more minutes, and I wanted them to dive a lot deeper into what they were actually saying. Like, because the first hour gives you all these premises of like who these people are and our relationship to them, and it's laugh at these people because they're ridiculous and they're so out of touch, which is all true. And then it just kind of stops exploring that. And it has some takes on food, like you were saying, and the, the restaurant industry and like how cutthroat it is, um, which I think all is, is fine. But as like an overall theme, it just didn't really uh, deliver for me. And I, at the end, I just, I just left like wanting a lot more from that last act. But I think this movie is definitely worth a watch. I think if you kind of turn your brain off a little bit, you'll enjoy it a lot. Um, it's entertaining, even if you don't share, uh, you know, the perspectives presented in the film. Um, so definitely worth at least a mention from me. Damn, man. <laughs> that's crazy. I do. I will. I will say that when you say turn your brain off that like for the normal person, that's like average. Yeah. Average like your, your, your brain's always going, you know, like it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Curse burdened by genius. Burdened by know? genius. This guy. Um, to follow up, I have... I don't think I have any honorable mentions. Um, <laughs> which kind of makes sense because, you know, a lot of movies in the back half of my top ten I wasn't you very feeling. strong on. Yeah, you were, you were a little mid on. Um, so maybe 22, 2022 was a pretty <laughs> shitty year for movies. <laughs> and like you said, the, your top five holds up. They, they do hold Your up. top five they absolutely hold up. holds up. Um, but I have a great dishonorable mention. Something I've been meaning, I've been wanting to go in on okay. for a while. Let's go on. Let's go in on this. Like, I know what you're about to say. I know what you're about to say. <laughs> that movie is Avatar: The Way of Water. <laughs> let's get it, man. Let's talk. Let's let's talk about this. Avatar: The Way of Water is the long-anticipated sequel to 
Avatar, the 2009 film that held the record for you know most grossing movie for a long, long time. It was the big James Cameron movie um, after Titanic. I think he might have done some more stuff in the meantime. No, but... he didn't. Oh, he did. He did Titanic. Okay. He did yeah. Avatar, and then he did Avatar: <laughs> Way of Water. Two, three, four, five, all coming <laughs> soon. <laughs> um, this movie, it has. It's 20% longer than the original Avatar. Yeah. Which was already pretty long, but had a lot happening in it. It had to build a world and show you the conflict within that world and then, you know, go down that whole path. Yeah. This movie is over three hours long, and it's very obviously a setup for sequels three, four, and five, where they're just going to try to make this as epic of a conflict as possible. But uh, basically what's happening in this movie now is that Jake Sully and Neytiri have had a family, uh, they have children, and they want to stay together. However, the humans are back. They're back on Pandora after getting kicked out in the end of the original Avatar. Big surprise. Um, and basically the humans are trying to kill Jake Sully and his family. They have to run away from their original uh, tribe or group, and they move to a sort of like a water tribe um, where I feel like originally they were with like an air tribe or something like that. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. But in this movie kind of follows them getting used to living the way of the water tribe. And it's just nothing happens in the movie. Um, like I said, it begins with like, oh, the humans are back. Very Star Wars Episode Nine. Sorry for the spoilers. But like... That's also a horrible movie. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing happens for three hours. Um, you get the same repetitive plot lines and side characters. And I get that they're trying to build relationships to last for future movies, but you don't have to do it so meticulously. I felt like they were spending a lot of time on building those relationships, but also those relationships were not changing or like getting stronger or getting very, weaker. Very one note. Very, very one, one note. Until the end, yes. where they try to have, you know, a little bit of action, a little bit of, you know, uh, flip-flopping of loyalties. But even that was very... It was out of nowhere. And it was also underwhelming at the same time. Yes. Um, you know, I think a lot of people really like this movie because they're like, Oh, James Cameron, he's just he's building a new reality for us. The special effects, the CGI... So, so can't be... Comp we should say yeah. that, like, the visual effects are really good yeah it's not you haven't seen anything like this before yeah but i i think for me and this this is definitely not true for most audiences because this movie is like going to be the highest grossing movie of all time pretty soon still climbing um it's at number three i think all time right now um I, I can't, if the story is not gripping, if the story isn't pulling me in and, and involving me and, and, and making me care, I, can't, I don't care about yeah. those things. And so I'm still remembering some really beautiful shots. I mean, a lot of this takes place underwater and there's some really amazing shots, no doubt. I just don't care. I mean, yeah. the, the, the first act of this movie is like, okay, fine, because you're getting thrown into this new chapter in their lives. The last act gives you some stuff to kind of think about it and, and enjoy in terms of like a final action sequence. I'll give them that. The middle hour and a half of this movie 
it's like, what are we doing? I mean, nothing changes. This guy, one of the characters visits another, I guess, character like four times and nothing. they just, they just hang out. Yeah. It felt like an hour and a half montage. They could have yeah. made that like a 10 minute thing. Yeah. This movie could have been two hours long. Yeah. I get you're trying to make three or four sequels down the line or whatever, but you have to give me something today to anticipate what you're showing in the future. You can't just say, hey, hey, I promise it's going to be really good. You know, there's a big, big thing coming right around the corner. You got to give me something where I'm at right now yeah. to intrigue me. You know what I'm saying? One of the things you told me after you watched it, which I think really resonated with me, is that in the first Avatar movie, we spend like over an hour with Jake Sully learning the ways of the Avatar and the Navi. He's learning the language. He's learning how to, how to um, uh, whatever that is, connect with Awan, connect with nature, with those little yeah. hair tail thingies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, learning how to, how to ride a dragon. All that stuff. That's like the movie. You're learning the, how to be that character and then you have this huge awesome set piece battle scene in this movie the the bad guys learn all that stuff in like six minutes yeah we watch it happen in real time in like six minutes and it was just so frustrating i'm like i would like that to be more of the story if that was more of the story i would have liked this movie if we actually saw their struggle and like these anti-nature anti-avatar anti-pandora people being forced to make a relationship with nature, make a relationship with the things they're trying to destroy. Yeah. That would be such a nuanced take at like uh, capitalism and, and its effects yeah. on uh, our planet and, and, and climate change, all those things. It's right there. It's just waiting to be picked at and nothing of depth is really explored in this movie. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head and I think we can put the final nail in the coffin. This movie sucks. Uh, don't don't waste your time or your money going to watch it. I'm Just gonna, watch the first Avatar if you like it. You're hard on a lot of movies. This one, I'm agreeing with. Don't go watch it. I don't think it's worth it. Dishonorables anymore? Uh, that, that's it for me. Okay. I, I have one more uh, mention that I'm going to mention. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run down a quick list of four Dishonorables before we get into our top five. This this movie that I want to mention is called The Fablemans. This is Steven Spielberg's latest movie. Um it is semi-autobiographical. It's about uh, Spielberg's childhood and his relationship with his parents and his family members and his first years as a filmmaker growing up and falling in love with movies. If you love movies and you love Spielberg and you like just a feel-good story, I think you should go watch this movie. There's, there's things to appreciate and things to kind of emotionally connect with that I can't deny. And I, I'll also not deny that I did connect with it on a certain level. This, in my ratings, this is like a three and a half out of five star movie. The reason it's not honorable for me though is because this is not spoiling anything because it's very, it's very clearly presented in the trailer. It's also the first line of dialogue is like a very obvious portrayal of this idea where Spielberg's mother was the artistic soul. She had the soul of, she, she was a, a classical pianist. She was a dancer. She, she wanted to tell stories. She wanted to be creative. And Spielberg's father was technical, was, you know, analyzing. He was um, quite literally like one of the first early employees at IBM. He was really on the cutting edge of technology at the time. And he just saw the world a different way. Spielberg obviously connected more with his mother. He's a filmmaker, so he, he got that part. He also had the technical aspects. You know, he's one of the best filmmakers alive. Obviously, there's a certain level of technical knowledge and understanding you have to have to get to that level. So he clearly took from both sides, which is represented in this movie. It's also a big point of conflict in this movie. If like you have both of these parents trying to tell you how to live and you want to appease them both and they're not getting along and 
their relationships at stake. The reason I don't think I connected with that at all is because that struggle of like art versus technology, I I definitely relate to a lot as like an Indian American who culturally and just like in general, we live our lives in this country as like you have to go for a safe route. You should go study something that will give you a safe career. And then obviously I love movies and I want to write and I want to do all these things. And nothing in that conflict presented in the movie felt that powerful to me. Because I was like, you know, I've I've been dealing with this since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm traumatized so your trauma doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even talking about trauma. Yeah. I'm literally talking about just, like, if you're gonna if you're gonna introduce this theme of like hey it's it's hard to be in a family of like somebody who's scientific and somebody who's artistic i just think that you need to i guess present it in a way that like is more powerful as a coming of age story i it's one of those things that like this movie got a lot of critical acclaim spielberg might win best director and i just think that if this was not a spielberg movie i don't think people would be talking about it the same way because people like this movie because they can see the connections between Spielberg's movies and those child characters that we all love and those broken families that are featured in all of his movies. We see the origins of that here. So as like an essay on Spielberg, great. Love it. As just like a standalone thing, I'm like, if, if a Joe Schmo made this movie, nobody would really care. And that's my honest opinion. Is that I just think that like if it wasn't Spielberg, I would feel a lot more comfortable putting this in Dishonorable Mentions. That's, that's all I'll say there. Four movies I hated, and I'm not going to explain just because I think it's really funny to do this. Lightyear. Pixar movie about Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> That's an L. Uh, don't, capital L. Capital ca- it's a capital L, L for me. Don't Worry Darling, directed by Olivia Wilde, starring Harry Styles and Florence Pugh. Garbage. The Gray Man. Uh, this is a Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans' Netflix action thriller. Disgusting. And finally, my least favorite movie of the year is called Amsterdam, directed by David O. Russell, starring Christian Bale and Margot Robbie. And this movie is complete garbage and has no idea what it's doing. <laughs> so, I've been meaning to watch that one. <laughs> Honestly, maybe people will watch the Dishonorable Mentions just because they know that we hate them, you know? I think there's a fun in that. But no explanation there. Just going to throw those out as movies I hate. All right. Let's get into it, man. Top five. Give it to me. Top five. My number five is Decision to Leave. Yeah. Um, Wow. I haven't seen this one. Yeah. So this is a Korean movie directed by Park Chan-wook, who has made a lot of other really great movies. I haven't seen many of them other than The Handmaiden, which is amazing. Um, definitely go watch that movie too. But I remember watching The Handmaiden and then I was like, Yo, Park Chan-wook, he's doing good stuff. And then I saw he's got Decision to Leave coming out. So I went to the theater and I watched it. And it's pretty good. So Decision to Leave, it's about a detective who's investigating a man's death in the mountains. Okay. And he ends up meeting and developing feelings for this dead man's wife, uh-huh. um, okay. who is an immigrant from China originally. And um, he basically, you know, of course, he's interviewing her to kind of, you know, let her know what happened and just learn more about the situation. And it kind of goes from there. Um, It's a very bare bones description. I don't want to give too much away, but this is kind of a mystery thriller. It's a little bit more on the mystery side than the thriller side, in my opinion. Um, 
and a lot of the twists are a little bit more subtle. Like, you definitely have to be paying attention when you watch this movie, or you'll miss where, like, the, you know, revelations are, because they are easy to miss. They're, they're little things. Um, and I think that resulted in the movie slightly underwhelming me at the end. But I still think the first half of the movie, I was fully engrossed in it. Um, there's a lot of action just watching this detective run around. He's suffering from insomnia. He's kind of distant from his wife. He has a wife, but he's developing feelings for this other woman. So there's a lot of conflict there, of course. Um, and just watching the, um, uh, I guess, the widow and the detective kind of circle each other and orbit around each other throughout this movie and watch their relationship grow deeper, um, there's a lot of tension there. and. That's done really, really well. And then, you know, in the second half or last third of the movie, I feel like the tension kind of breaks a little bit and almost resets. And a kind of a new story uh, starts to form or like a second half, a second act. It's beautifully shot. A lot of like really creepy shots of like the dead guy in the mountains and like ants crawling on his body and like on his open eyes and mm. just really unsettling stuff Delicious. Um, done really really well um i was trying to think of other movies to compare it to and i came up with insomnia the chris nolan movie one of his worst movies but still a really good movie overall okay um or like a slightly worse gone girl almost oh interesting yeah you know i think gone girl is a little overrated I kind of agree with that too. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but uh, I haven't seen it in a long time as well. But I definitely, you know, go watch all these. Yeah, Decision to Leave is one of those movies that I I haven't not seen it, but it was getting a lot of awards buzz uh, a couple months ago, and infamously shut out of the Oscars. Not even nominated for international feature. While people thought that it was going to get nominated for best picture and best director and all these things, so um, I, I hope to watch it soon because I, I think it. It might be one of those movies that because it didn't get any Oscars buzz, people are now forgetting about it and thinking it may not be good, which I, I hope no one ever does with anything uh, compared to the Oscars. But yeah, great pick. All right, number five on my list is a movie called Women Talking. This movie is directed by Sarah Pauly and is basically about a group of women living in a society. This is actually based on real-life events that occurred in uh, Bolivia somewhere. Um they're a group of Mennonites. You know, maybe kind of think like Amish, but like they're different. You know, like no technology, kind of just living out there on the farm Yes. situation. Yeah. This is like relatively new story that we're, we're talking about here. It's based on a novel that I think came out a couple years ago, maybe five years ago. Basically, women in this society have been sexually abused for years and... The movie begins with all the men in the colony leaving to go bail out a handful of men from jail. And as these men are gone, these women have 48 hours and they basically strike up a conversation um, saying that we should leave this colony. And it becomes this debate. The most obvious movie that you can draw comparisons to is 12 Angry Men. I think it's a disservice to label this as just 12 Angry Women, though. Because that's kind of the point, is like anytime women bring up things, they're not supposed to get angry and get emotional. People assume they're angry when they're just talking. Yeah. We must consider this. No, 
No, that is not our responsibility because we aren't in charge of whether or not they are punished. We know that we've been attacked by men, not by ghosts or Satan, as we were led to believe for so long. We know that we've not imagined these attacks, that we were made unconscious with cow tranquilizer. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and terrified and insane and some of us are dead. We know that we must protect our children regardless of who is guilty. This, this movie, I found it really powerful because it's a smart screenplay because it, it goes through each of the women through the conversation and through their dynamic and their debating and you get to know how they feel and why they feel that way based on their experiences and their family and their relationships um, and their past. And they hit a lot of things that I just found really powerful at times. Um, you know, they, they hit, I think, most powerfully this idea that like the most traumatized women in this situation don't want to leave. What, what some people see them as is, uh, I guess, unflexible and not cooperative. The truth is, is that they, they just, they don't have a choice. Mm, and they yeah. present that really, really cleverly in this movie. Some of the acting performances in this movie are fantastic. It's a uh, pretty all-around cast. Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, who's come around the last couple of years as a, as a really exciting Irish actress. Um, Ju Judith Ivey and Frances McDormand. There is one main man uh, character played by Ben Whishaw, who I guess plays Q in the new James Bond movies. He's like that young guy with the glasses. He was also in that uh, new Mary Poppins movie. But yeah, he's great. I, I just really found this movie to be powerful. I love the script. I'm a big fan of like a tight script that portrays and conveys a lot of complex ideas in a really smart way. Yeah, I just had a good time with this. I think it, not, a, not a lot of people are talking about this movie. It kind of snuck into the best picture category, which I think is deserved. Um, and I hope that it wins best screenplay at the Oscars. Yeah, I so I have seen this movie. Yeah, I so I don't feel as strongly about it as Mihir does, but I think it's definitely a movie to go watch and form your own opinion about. I think it tells an amazing, interesting story, it being based on a novel, which was also inspired by real-life events. Uh, I think the story there is one that's really important and something that's worth discussing. The movie itself didn't work that well for me because it definitely felt like I was watching like the film adaptation of a book or like of a play almost. Right. Um, because it is so like dialogue driven. I think me personally, I just, I need some action or I, I tend to lose interest. Um, but fantastic performances from all the cast. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was surprised to see that there was no nomination, no acting nominations. Insane, honestly. Yeah. The, my best guess as to why there wasn't is because with a movie like this, it's hard to it's hard to denote who the the main Pick actress out. is. Yeah, and so you have to either all run in best supporting actress, which means that you're gonna get a vote split. Yeah. So like 33 percent of people will vote for Rooney Mara, and then right. others will vote for Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley, which just sucks because I think like Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley specifically. I thought were like really good in this movie. Rudy Mar was also great too, but yeah, I just yeah, it's just a shame because I think more people would pay attention to this movie if it if it got some more buzz in the press. My number four movie of twenty twenty two. Oh God, <laughs> is a fantastic action thriller comedy. It's got it all, folks. Called Bullet Train. I really really enjoyed this movie. Um, I think a lot of people 
watched it and just thought of it as like, you know, it's like an action movie. It passes the time. Um, it's me. I'm a lot of people. <laughs> I think you might be forgetting what you do for a living. Take the gun. Every job I do, somebody dies. I'm not that guy anymore. Some conflicts require a gun. Hey, this is nice. But I just, I don't know, I really enjoyed the characters. I thought it was, the jokes landed on me at, you know, at times. Brad Pitt anchors this movie, and I think it's it's a great performance by him. Uh, he's, you know, one of the actors that I follow most closely. It's been really interesting to see him kind of shift into this older leading man. He was in Babylon. He was, he's in this movie. He was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood pretty recently. Yeah. Um... Interesting to see his evolution. The premise of this movie is that there is an assassin named Ladybug. This is Brad Pitt's character, um, who is determined to do his job peacefully after one too many gigs has gone off the rails. Fate, however, has other plans for him as his latest mission puts him on a collision course with other uh, assassins and lethal adversaries from around the globe, all meeting on the world's fastest train in Japan. So there's a lot of fight scenes in this movie. I think they're choreographed pretty well. Um, it takes place on the bullet train for the most part. Uh, just visually striking, like a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's a movie where I think if you get too down in the weeds of trying to understand what's happening, you will not appreciate it as much <laughs> because there are some logical fallacies, as I'm sure Mir will point out, um, <laughs> and, and some gaps that just kind of get paved over. I think that is a symptom of this being adapted from a novel where like whenever a book is adapted into a movie, there's inevitably things that they leave out. Just cast very well. Um, there are two, they're, they're called twins, um, but they're basically brothers who grew up together, I think in an orphanage. Maybe yeah. I'm hallucinating this. But, I, think, I think that's right. Okay. P played by Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, they were they were my favorite part yeah, of the movie. There's so many good comedic mo moments between them. Um, just great to see how like this web of characters kind of clashes and like the little uh, the snowball effects of the actions of one of them impacting others. Bad Bunny is in this movie and he is amazing. Uh, he's in it for only a little bit, but he he all, he plays another assassin and he's great. I didn't even know he was Bad Bunny until afterwards. Um, I would compare it to. Kill Bill Volume 1 mixed with John Wick. Tremendous, you know, action movies, a lot of violence. <laughs> um, go watch it. So I, 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 won't, I won't say too many bad things because I honestly think I was too hard on it because I was expecting, like, I think I just went in with the wrong expectations. And I think you're right. that Like, if you try to, like, piece together a story, you're focusing on the wrong things, which I think is maybe what I was doing. Uh, my number four, and we're trading off movies that we don't like uh, on each other's lists here because I know you, you weren't the biggest <laughs> fan of this movie and I will continue to try to bump you up half a star at a time on this one this is a movie called The Banshees of Inisherin. Um this is directed by Michael not Michael sorry Martin McDonough his last movie was uh, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri that came out in 2018 I believe uh, this movie is, is very easy to understand as a premise it's basically uh, on a remote island right outside of the Republic of Ireland during the Irish Civil War, 
two friends are going through a friendship breakup. They have this routine that's very clearly laid out in the first few minutes where at 2 p.m. every day, they go to the bar together and they have beers until the sun goes down and then they go to sleep and then they do that every day. And this morning, one of the characters goes to his friend's house and he's not there. He goes to the pub and uh, his friend is there and he went without him. And he's trying to figure out, you know, what what happened and like, what, what's going on with his friend? And the main character's sister jokes like, oh, maybe he doesn't like you anymore. And when he actually gets some FaceTime with this friend of his, his friend looks him in the eyes and says, I just don't like you anymore. And it's, it, it's, it's basically a black comedy that is increasingly dark as you go along. Some things I just really, really loved about this movie is that it takes on like this complex theme of male friendship and male bonding and how you know simple it can be on the surface but how kind of fragile it is and um, what a lot of that is based off of. I, I really appreciated like dwelling on these themes of like what it means to live a purposeful life which is what the character's main conflict is here. You know one of the main characters believes that if you're a nice person and you're having a good time in life what is there what, what more do you want? And the other character is of the opinion that if you don't have anything to show for your life, if you don't have anything to leave behind, what was it all for? And that is kind of like the root conflict that motivates both of their decisions. And I just think that like, I, I could write an essay on why I just found the characters here so fascinating and the world that they live in so fascinating. You know, they're on a remote island in, uh, off of Ireland and the civil war is going off in the background, which is very like obvious metaphor for their relationship. But it also goes to show that like, you know, these people living this quarantined life, I'm not using that word lightly, I do think that like this movie was influenced by the pandemic and the lives that we all lived. These people have such a small life compared to what actually is going on in the world. And as the movie goes along, it just becomes more and more serious, this this uh, friendship conflict that they face. So yeah, I just find it really powerful and just really sad at the end of it. Um, you see these two friends slowly just break up further and further. I highly recommend it. You know, there's a good chance that it comes around and, and wins Best Picture. I, there was talks that it was picking up steam. It's on HBO Max. It was the number one movie on the site for a while. Amazing performance by all the actors in it. I'll call out Colin Farrell is like great in this movie. Um, and I know you didn't like it. And so I would love to hear why. Yeah, I so I think the parts of the movie that worked for me are related to the themes that you mentioned. None of the humor was funny to me. I, really? I, I feel like it's very deadpan. Very. Um, very black, deadpan and Black drama. comedy, but yeah. it just, it was very kind of like basic to me or just like random, too random in, so, in some sense. And not much happens, right? They're on this small island. They're just kind of doing things day to day. Each one's actions kind of, you know, up the ante, but I didn't feel like it, it, reached uh, a convincing climax um and I, I you know i thought the metaphor for the the irish civil war and the troubles and whatnot was pretty basic and obvious um and i really don't know why it's so critically acclaimed like i i feel like this you know it could be a you know, a three or four star movie or like a seven out of 10, but I, I missing why a lot of people really, really like this movie and thought it was one of the best movies 
of the year. It, it, it is, I will say, like, I think on the surface, I would agree with you, but Martin McDonough is really good at introducing a lot of, like, complexity into the way he, like, visually shows things. Like, he, there's a, like, there's almost, like, a way you could read this biblically as well. I read an essay, uh, an article that was, like, pretty long and talking about how, like, you know, th- there there's a Catholic element to this uh, movie, and uh, it's clear that all these characters are, like, somewhat religious. There's, I think there's a ton to, like, uncover here under the surface, which is why I think it's getting that acclaim is because it's like this. It's an essay in movie form. Um, but yeah, to each their own. You know, if, if we don't agree on this movie in the future, Barbara, we might, we might end up like this. <laughs> <laughs> and number three, I have, you know, a, a great movie, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Fantastic. It's a great, great movie. It's billed... Maybe it's not even billed as a children's movie, but, you know, it has the vibe of, like, you would assume it's for children. If you're a parent and you're like, oh my gosh, a Pinocchio movie on Netflix, you're going to sit down your two and four-year-old, put them on the couch, and then traumatize them for life. Yeah, because this movie is is not for children. I don't think it's for children. Not for children. It's for older people. I mean, it's it's got very dark things happening in it. There's a lot of complex themes. And I think there's a lot for adults to get out of it. And in that sense, it feels like, you know, one of those great Pixar movies where like adults can get a lot out of this probably different from what a kid would get out of it but it works for all audiences I thought this movie was wildly entertaining Um, to be honest I haven't read up on like the original Pinocchio story in a while so I don't know how true this was to that or if it varies a lot but it's this movie even if you don't like the movie, it's such an achievement in filmmaking. Like, it looks like it's just animated, but it's made with stop motion. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Uh, I think Mir was telling me this movie took, like, years to make and, like, just a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. This will this will win Best Animated Feature at the Oscars simply because of the achievement in animation, I think. Um, it is not my favorite animated movie of the year, but it's definitely the most... Or the most impressive achievement of the year. Um, I will say though, did you find it weird that like when you meet Geppetto, the old guy in the beginning, he's like 75 years old and then he goes through this whole like life cycle and then makes Pinocchio and he's like 140 probably, but he just looks like five years older. Yeah. That made no sense yeah. to me. I was like, why did they make him Geppetto, so old? Geppetto is ancient, He's man. ancient in this movie. But yeah, I mean, there's... This movie is just... I think it's a great movie for adults. Like, it concludes in a really convincing way for me, um, which oftentimes, like, an unsatisfying ending can, like, almost ruin a movie for me. So it was, like, great to see that this concluded in a way that, like, some may say it was even a cheesy ending, but there's aspects to it that are more nuanced than, like, your classic fairy tale. It's about Nazis, so... Yeah. Which yeah. is well, fascists, fascists. other, yeah, not technically Nazis, true, but, uh, yeah. But yeah. I just think that, like, if you're gonna watch a Pinocchio movie <laughs> that's about fascists, yeah, 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 sold, sure, yeah, <laughs> do it to me. Benito Mussolini is featured in this movie in stop motion form, yeah. Um, Kate Blanchett, you know, she was, she, I heard she was great in Tara, didn't watch the movie. She's in this movie, she plays a monkey called Spazzatura. This is probably her best role of all time. This monkey has no, like... No words. No words. Like, in any language, he's just making monkey noises. And Kate Blanchett kills it. She can speak any language, do any accent. <laughs> she's she's the pinnacle of, of acting. 
That monkey um, scared me a lot during this movie. <laughs> that there's so many creepy things in this movie. Yeah, but yeah it is a good yeah. one. Hard, hard to pass up. Um, my number three is also animated, which is is crazy. I didn't realize that going into this. And it's a movie that I think does not get enough credit. This movie is called Turning Red. This came out in February or March of 2022. It feels like years ago because it came out so long ago. Um, this went straight to Disney Plus, and Pixar decided to focus its resources on another movie called Lightyear. And Lightyear got the big theatrical release, which was the biggest mistake Pixar made. Turning Red is a very sweet story about a Chinese Canadian uh, teenager who basically is cursed by this like hereditary curse, <laughs> where she turns into a giant red panda. And she has to deal with this giant red panda whenever she feels any strong emotion. And she has to do this for a month. And after a month, her family members can uh, do a ritual to remove the giant red panda from her and she can be free. And it felt so fresh from what Pixar's been putting out ever since like Coco, which is six years ago now. Um, this movie has a lot of like, what, what seem like obvious themes about like womanhood and puberty and like being on your period and things like that, which I think is what uh, the press was talking about when it came out. Like, oh, it's a movie that features periods. First of all, it doesn't feature periods. <laughs> There's not a single like period scene. There's one moment where the mom is like, oh my gosh, already? I didn't realize you were there yet. Mm. And that's like her talking about her period. But that's a, a five second throwaway line. This movie is so much more than that. It basically like uses the giant red panda as a vehicle to talk about women's relationship to their feelings and generational trauma and uh, her, her family and her moms and her grandmas and her aunt's relationships to their pandas compared to hers and her uh, journey of, of self-acceptance and self-love. And all that to say, it's also like hilarious. It's like this like really crazy teenage girl with her other like crazy teenage friends and they're just so openly themselves, which is very refreshing. I just love this movie. I, I just wish more people talked about it. It's very powerful. It's directed by Domi Shi, who also made the short film Bao, Pixar short, 2018 Bao, um, which that, that short film got a lot of buzz um, on social media and just in general, which I think probably led her to, to leading this on. The main uh, cast and crew of this movie is also female-led, which is really cool as well. All right, we're down to the terrible twos. Let's do it. My second-ranked film of 2022 and it's like it's almost a 1b it's a 1a and a 1b situation they're both kind of tied for first i had to put something in first something in second i feel the same way about mine yeah. to be clear <laughs> and this movie is rrr telugu movie of the century not salsa not flamenco my brother do you know not to what is Natu? Polam got to Dumulo, Napot, like it, Tadukina to Pole, Majataralo, Potaraju, Gina to Kirusepole, Sakori, Karasamusina to Maris, to Nirona, Kura, Gumpukurina to Yerajon, Narotelona, Mirabatuku, Garibina, Napata Zudo, Napata Zudo, Napata Zudo, Napata Zudo, Napata Zudo, Napata Zudo, Napata in very different circumstances. One is an officer in the pro-British Indian Imperial Police, uh, and the other is like the leader of a rural village. And basically their stories become intertwined as a child 
from the village is taken by the evil uh, British ruling people. So this draws the village leader out um, into the city where he meets the other revolutionary who's serving in the Indian Imperial Police who is uh, basically trying to hunt him down um, at that time. Okay. This movie, one of the many things it did right was that it got competent white actors who can actually speak English and like deliver lines, um, which was really, really, really helpful. Um, <laughs> okay. It does a lot of other things well, too. It leans fully into the absurd action sequences and melodrama of Masala movies um, to create like one of the best bromances of all time. Nice. Um, it literally, it has all these, like, I call them themes. I don't know if it's that deep, but, like, you have man versus nature, like, versus animals. You got man, singular versus men, plural. <laughs> you got man versus man because, you know, there's mano y mano wow. against these two guys. Uh, they're just, the, the cinematography like, they went big budget, and they, like, did not skimp on anything. Nice. The scenes, like, one of the intro character, one of the character's introductory scenes, he literally fights a mob of, like, a hundred people. Just him. <laughs> and it's so absurd, but it works. Yeah. It, it works because it's shot so well. Um, the music is so good. There's, like, the songs that everyone knows, Natu Natu, great song, but... And outside of, like, the actual, like, musical type of songs with words and whatnot, like, the sound effects and little things like that, great. Um, choreography, like, just go watch the Natu Natu music video. That, in a nutshell, will show you, like, how crazy this movie is. Like, yeah. I cannot do that dance without breaking my hip. Like, you know, even if I practice for, like, months. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive. Um, and just some of the best fight choreography I've ever seen. Just, I, I don't want to spoil anything, which is why, like, I'm struggling. Because, you know, I'm just so excited, but I can't get the words out. I feel you. Um, but just, just go watch this movie. I was very fortunate to watch this movie in a theater, a packed theater of, like, super fans of the movie. Who had already seen it before and, like knew when it was time to get hype and like knew when the emotional moments were coming uh it was just a really good theater going experience which i think enhanced the film for me but i think even if you watch this at home it's on netflix unfortunately it's a hindi dub, dub that's on netflix you can't get the original audio but um definitely definitely watch it nice yeah i've never seen it i've been putting it off on 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 netflix uh partly because i had this conception that i think has changed after you watched it that I thought it was so weird that white people love this movie because India in general, Bollywood and Tollywood and, and Mollywood, they, they all put out pretty great movies all the time, or even if they're not great, incredibly entertaining. Yeah. And I just couldn't for the life of me understand why white people would just jump onto a movie like this. Um, and so I was sus. I was like, do white yeah. people love it because it's, it's easier for them to understand is it, like, what, what about it are they falling in love with? But it sounds like they're loving it because of all the things you mentioned about it. The fact that it's over the top and it's entertaining yeah. and it's something you can digest. And I think it almost helps that, like, we have our own versions of this that are probably less great but 
are easier to understand. Like, we have Fast and Furious 9. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think the vibe is. Like, this is an international action thriller blockbuster that I think is can be felt universally. And I think there's a lot of films like, like Indian films like that that didn't get their due, but, like, I can't fault RRR for that right sure um but it is a funny point that like every indian person i've talked to that has watched this movie has just said like yeah it's pretty mid like it's just another masala movie yeah but like it's the western audience that really loves it like the western critics and just like people when i was in that theater i was surrounded by white people man i was a little scared you know i was like (laughs) what's what's gonna happen like is this a good movie um and it was a great experience I'm, I'm fully I'm fully in. That's awesome. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. And I'll definitely check it out. I encourage our audience to do the same. Um, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. My number two movie. And when you say like 1A, 1B, I'm going to say it like... <laughs> the reason this isn't at number one is because I think I would lose a lot of... Uh, credibility. Credibility if I put it at number one. But let me tell you when this is... I think my... F- <laughs> I don't know if I can say that. This is an incredible movie. And I will, I will stick with it until I die. Because it has a lot of haters. Including some of my best friends. Hate this movie. And I, I love this movie. This movie is Top Gun Maverick. Yes! Yeah, the baby. blockbuster of the century. Or yes, at least sir. of the decade. We're going into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. You think up there you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not gonna make the same mistake. Someone's not coming back from this. I can't, I can talk about this movie all day and I won't spoil it. Cause how are you gonna spoil a Top Gun sequel? <laughs> it's Top Gun, it's Tom Cruise, playing Maverick 30, 40 years after the events of Top Gun, the original. He's called back to Top Gun, this time to be an an instructor, uh, almost like player coach. And the main emotional conflict here in this movie is that the son of his his old partner who passed away in the first Top Gun movie, uh, Goose, Goose. his son Rooster... um, is in this movie and 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 they have a, a pretty big beef which is that hey you killed my dad which is like you know and also he um that might be a spoiler what you're okay, about to say okay because i was thinking about this yeah. which i think the trailer presents it as one way where that's, that's the true. that's the o- that's the only yeah. emotional conflict but there is there is other stuff going on under the surface yeah. where maverick and rooster are kind of butting heads throughout this whole movie yeah. rooster is played by miles teller which I think, like, Miles Teller for me, it goes like Whiplash, number one performance, Top Gun Maverick, number two. <laughs> like, it's, he's, it's the best. He's so fun in this movie. And I think that's like one of my favorite parts about it is like the chemistry you have between all the actors is like, it's all these like young, hot people getting along. The first Top Gun showed pretty much everyone to be kind of a douchebag. And in this movie, you have some douchebags and some people you can genuinely kind of fall in love with as people, yeah. which I think was refreshing. Um, overall, just like hands down the most fun movie I have seen in a long time, let alone this year. I saw it three times, all in theaters. Theatrically, like the sound and the visuals are incredible. The cinematography is incredible. All Almost all of the effects are practical. They really got into planes and they really 
um, like flew in them and filmed inside these planes, which is incredible. And you can tell in the movie that like the action is pretty astounding. There's a lot of like nostalgia in here for those of you who have a relationship to the old Top Gun. I didn't watch the original Top Gun until a week before I watched this movie. So I did not care about the old Top Gun at all. All I knew was like Tom Gun uh, or Tom Gun. Tom Cruise <laughs> looks really hot in the old one. And let me tell you something. He's 60 in this movie. He looks fantastic. His body's there, his pearly whites are there. He's still riding the motorcycle and looking good on it. Um so even if you don't have a relationship with the old Top Gun, I think there's a lot to love here. The, the criticisms I've heard is that it's cheesy and it's predictable and it's, um, I, I don't know, like corny. Yeah, and I, I can jump in here. I really enjoyed watching this movie. I watched it in theaters as well. Uh, I think in my rankings, it came out to like fifth or sixth, so still pretty high. This is the movie I was referring to earlier. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what I think works is that it has to do with what you have as perceived qualms with the movie, that it's cheesy and corny. I didn't you, like know, you know exactly what's going to happen in this movie. They're going to win in the end. You know that going in. But the fact that it still makes you you know, feel like, oh, are they really going to pull this off? Yes. Or like, is somebody, like, are we going to lose somebody along the way? Yeah. You really feel that in the theater, which I think is why this movie still works very, very well. And also, yeah, Miles Teller is the perfect was the perfect casting decision to play Goose's son. He looks so much yeah. like Goose and he's rocking the mustache just Great. like his dad was. Yeah. And like he's perfect at having the carefree attitude that Goose had in the original, but also that fire that comes from his tension with Tom Cruise's character and just other things going on in life. Yeah. Um, so I I think he really if his performance performance was not as good, this would have just been like a three, you know, two or three stars. This movie. would have been a Mission Impossible movie, yeah. Had it not been the strong emotional core that they set up here, yeah. I mean, everything you, everything that Top Gun did, this did like ten times better. I think. Oh yeah. Obviously, I don't have the old nostalgic relationship that a lot of people have, which I get. But I mean, yeah. I mean, the acting and the characters and um, Val Kilmer's in this as well. Mm-hmm. Iceman from the, the original movie, he's in this, and in real life, Val Kilmer has throat cancer and can barely talk. And he's basically featured the same way in this movie. And obviously, like, that's pretty powerful. But I didn't even realize that when I was watching it the first time. And I still thought it was a very moving uh, storyline. And so I just don't agree with anyone's take of, like, this is nostalgia-ridden and relies on too much, like, outside knowledge to appreciate. I just think that, like, if you go in thinking that it's a Top Gun movie, you're going to have a fantastic time. Yeah, I, I think it's it stands on its own feet, you know? Like, if it was what these people are making it out to be, it would be like the Ghostbusters remake or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just like fully cap- capitalizing on nostalgia. But no, this is, it's just a really well-made movie. Hell yeah. Feeling good. Yeah. You ready for our number ones? Yes. So my number one, it's a movie called The Northman. I love this movie. I've seen it twice, both times in theaters. It's really weird. I think a lot of people will find it too unsettling and strange to truly enjoy um but i really liked it it was very different this is a movie uh directed by robert eggers um i think it's his biggest budget movie totally um and you know i i I didn't like the lighthouse and i haven't seen the witch or i don't know what else he's done but he's got that little you know freaky 
off-putting vibe with a lot of his stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it works really well here. Northman, here's a synopsis. Uh, it takes place in, in, in the Viking age and you're following Vikings. Prince Amleth, he's like the son of a, some Viking king, um, is on the verge of becoming a man when his father, the king, is brutally murdered by his uncle who kidnaps his mother. It's, that's the Lion King. It's, it, this movie is sh very Shakespearean in that way. Yeah, it is a very classic Shakespearean revenge tale. Totally. I was doing some research. I think this is actually, this legend is the basis for Hamlet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and basically, so that happens when he's a boy about to become a man. Then you check back with him two decades later. He is a Viking who is a, he raids villages. Um, and he's kind of forgotten about his, you know, what happened in the past, but then he meets some spirit that reminds him of his vow, which is to save his mother, kill his uncle, and avenge his father. Yeah, just a classic revenge story. I think that was one of the criticisms of the movie, that it was just very kind of cookie cutter. Like, um, but in my opinion, there are a few small twists along the way, um, things that you wouldn't see coming unless you've seen the movie already. Um, I think this is definitely a career best from Alexander Skarsgård, who plays Amleth. Totally. He is just masculinity at, in its rawest form in this movie. Like totally. His primal yelling and screaming just will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. He turns into an animal. He turns into an animal, which yeah. is, I, I think it's a big theme in the movie, and it's like maybe a big thing in Viking culture. This movie portrays a lot of Viking culture, which is very violent, very graphic, and like very disturbing, I think, at times, which could stop you from enjoying the movie if you really dwell on some of those things. Um, I don't think this movie is for everyone, um, but I think it's it's definitely worth watching if you go in prepared enough. Uh, so I watched this in theaters as well, and I think the reason it didn't um, necessarily like get on my list is because of the first qualm you said, it's just like the cookie cutter story. I could tell probably halfway through that this was a pretty like standard Shakespearean revenge tale, and... I was kind of always looking for like what's different and you're right there were some twists the one that stood out to me that I won't spoil but it revolves around Nicole Kidman's role in this story um, and that was pretty shocking to me but on reflection this this um, got on my list of like the best movie scores of the year incredible music and the music and the way it sounded especially in the theater oh man it like it really carries it's really strong and powerful and driving um, great set pieces uh, and some really good fighting and action and like I think you're right just like raw energy to it that was pretty sick like the visuals the audio the story storytelling here it has fantasy elements it's it's mythic it's epic but not in the traditional sense almost like yes. it's it's there's small twists um, that I think just make it so much more convincing to me you know I'm not a historian I don't know much about Viking culture but it feels pretty authentically done um i haven't seen too much criticism from people saying that it wasn't authentic so i think we can assume that at least some of the stuff was uh you know portrayed well but uh they did consult yeah. historians on yeah. the movie so it sounds like there actually was a lot of thought put into um the language and the uh the roles that different characters play in it which is pretty neat if you're if you're into that yeah this movie is fun uh Definitely check out the movie. Check out the, the, the scores of the movie as well. Uh, it's good stuff.
My number one, and, and I'll wrap this up fairly quickly because A, we've been talking for two hours, which is wild. Um, and B, I did a whole episode on this movie uh, last week. This movie is everything everywhere all at once. My favorite movie of the year. It was just incredibly fresh and not, like nothing I'd ever seen before. The best uh, multiverse movie I think is out there. Um, and at the heart of it is just this emotional core about an immigrant mom who wants to be so many things and wants to be great and just feels like she's letting herself down, which I think was just like really heartbreaking off the offset as like somebody who has an immigrant mother and like there's a lot of conflicts and, and um, issues that any immigrants face and they're all kind of at the forefront here um, in the premise and very quickly becomes this crazy action-adventure kung fu movie with the really pure heart of gold and yeah i can't say enough good things about this movie uh i think this is one of those movies that absolutely is like kind of like a modern classic that i think our generation specifically is going to have a long-standing relationship with considering that like the main villain jobu Jupaki, is a gen z queen <laughs> like, yeah. she's like so rooted yeah. in our understanding of the internet and of life and of like our relationship with nihilism and these things that generations have witnessed but our generation has fully kind of embraced as a part of our life yeah 100% I really enjoyed this movie I think it cracked my top five originally just below bullet train <laughs> just to you know stick the knife in Meher's back a yeah, little bit go. a little bit more but um yeah it, it's you know terrifically I you never seen a movie like this basically it stands on its own it, it tackles so many themes that are uh topical today that haven't been talked about before, as Mihir has said. And yeah, I, I honestly don't have much to add to that. Any closing thoughts on 2022? We talked about a ton of movies today. Yeah, one big thought is, yeah, I need to watch like 15 more movies from 2022. Because I'm just, I was like, I haven't seen so many good ones. And so many bad ones. Yeah, um, and I'm sure our audience feels the same way. Which, yeah. you know, is a good problem to have. You should yeah. always feel like you are you have a lot of options and and. Different things for different days, rainy days, cloudy days, good days, happy days. Yeah. Maybe looking ahead to 2023, anything we're really anticipating. It's already March, and I don't think much has come out yet. Hey, Cocaine Bear dropped, and I like that movie. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It was, it was pretty mid. But a um, ton of great movies coming out this year. And let's hold off on talking about it, because in a couple of weeks, look forward to our episode on the most anticipated movies of 2023. In the meantime, Barva, thanks for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, listeners, thanks for listening to Video Village. We'll see you next week. Take care. Special thanks to my lovely girlfriend, Kubra Patel, for the podcast's artwork, and my good friend, Kevin Cow, for the music that you're listening to now. You can find more of his music on Instagram at Wei Guang Beats. Thanks, y'all.